Welcome to the Age of Organizational Effectiveness. This is a podcast that explores stories about organizations and their performance. I'm your host, Charles Chandler. This is episode number 105, and I'm calling it Fundraising for Nonprofits. Today I'll be talking with Martin Leifel, author of Five Minutes for Fundraising. Martin helped raise over $500 million during his 24 years of fundraising experience in the St. Louis area. Martin's book is a collection of expert advice from gifted fundraisers. I'm now joined by Martin from St. Louis. Good morning, Martin. How are you doing? Charles, doing great. How are you? We're in the midst of this coronavirus pandemic. How are things up there in in your part of the world? Of course, it's moment by moment, day by day. Things are so fluid right now. Exactly. But, uh, you know, I I think we, uh, St. Louisans, operate out of a place of hope. And uh, I guess you might say confidence that things are going to work out over time. But, you know, like your situation, until there's more testing, it's hard to know, you know, how far things have progressed or not in our local communities. And uh, it kind of, you know, keeps that, that anxiety kind of ever present, I, I think. So let's get into your book a little bit. Why did you want to write uh, Five Minutes for Fundraising? Charles, maybe six years ago, five years ago, I, I, I took 100 days. Uh, I set aside 100 days and spent some time to really think about uh, kind of my circumstances. I was 59, about to turn 60, so I was approaching another decade. And uh, during that kind of time of reflection, I decided I wanted to find one or more ways to give back to the profession. Most of my career has been on the nonprofit side of things in leadership and fundraising, and I've received so many benefits uh, with my career in this, uh, this world that I wanted to give back. And, and I, I thought initially that, uh, well, maybe I could write a book. You know, I've had a lot of ideas I've been noodling about and uh, about our profession. And then I did, what I ended up doing actually is starting with a, a series of uh, brief videotapes on fundraising matters, particularly around the engagement side of fundraising. And started a small website called martinleifeld.com. And uh, that's grown, by the way, now to, oh, geez, about 120, 125 videos, mostly short, meaning five to 10 minutes about fundraising and some leadership video uh, focused uh, as well. And it was more or less from that set of videos that the the book got its genesis. So I had the video, the, the, I should say, the, the, yeah, the videos transcribed and decided that, well, we needed more content. And, you know, my videos aren't trying to comprehensively cover a subject. It's like I said, noodling is the word. I'm more, you know, thinking about something in particular, some angle or feature or facet of fundraising that I'll talk a few minutes about. So I went out and actually recruited 26 others to participate in the book. And what's great about Five Minutes for Fundraising is it's not just, you know, reading what Martin Leifel has to say. So for every chapter, there's a collaborator. And these collaborators come from, you know, a, a variety of organizations in the nonprofit world and from around the country. And uh, they do so much to enhance the, the topic of a given chapter, both in terms of expanding upon what's important about the topic, but also giving some really great examples of, drawn from their personal experience in the profession. 
So that's that's kind of it. Uh, it's been really a great book to uh, give away. It's been a great book to see purchased. And I've gotten so much great feedback about the value of, of the book in its entirety, as well as, you know, certain chapters. Yeah, thanks for sending a copy to me, and I read it. It has a very positive and important message, I think. The way I interpret your book, it characterizes the fundraiser as something of an intermediary, first seeking to understand what the potential donor is trying to accomplish with his or her giving before offering opportunities that can help accomplish their goals. Can you expand on how this theme works out in practice for our listeners? Yes, and I think you're accurate uh, uh, in terms of describing it as an intermediary role. I've come up with the phrase facilitators of philanthropy. And so the, what a fundraiser is to do is to be a facilitator. Uh, he or she are to represent an organization and the mission and the important dimensions of that organization to prospective donors and to stand, you might say, on behalf of, but between the organization as its representative and the prospective donor. And we're facilitators in the sense that what we're trying to do, it's almost like matchmaking, Charles. What we're trying to do is bring together the passions and purpose of the donor, prospective donor, and align it with the mission and the activities of our organization. This is uh, all about the donor. And while we're representing our organizations and we're very passionate about our organizations, it's mostly about you know where the donor is in terms of how she or he perceive themselves and perceive our organization. The money rests with them after all. You know, we can insist, demand, command that they, they support our organization. We can only invite. So we think about as fundraisers, those of us who do this work well, I think, is, well, what is it about these donors that matters to them? And what is it about our organization that aligns with what matters to them? And it's around that kind of connection that we as fundraisers can have conversations about support. And what happens, Charles, in my experience is that when a donor is giving to something they believe aligns with their, their values, they're going to give more generously. And there's also the possibility that they're going to derive greater satisfaction for having made the gift and seeing the gift begin to do uh, what the donor hoped and the, and the representative hoped would be accomplished with that support. After all, Charles, people don't want to be perceived as checkbooks, as pocketbooks. They want to be understood. They want to be respected uh, as people for who they are. And by our putting these donors first, understanding what they're about, this leads to just some great, great uh, giving on their, on their behalf. Well, in fundraising, there seems to be a certain amount of fear and anxiety on the part of some fundraisers. Uh, I, I think I detected that early in your book and at least early in your career. Hopefully, that would re be replaced over time with a sense of trust <coughs> as the relationship with the donor develops. Um, do you ever get over the anxiety of an important call? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, I would have to say, for me... Not really. 
I've had the practice, and I think every good fundraiser does, of preparing very thoroughly and thoughtfully in advance of going to engage with someone. I will, uh, I would outline the call, think through what I hope to accomplish and the order in which I'd like to see the conversation flow. Oftentimes, I, most often, I would review what I was going to do with someone on my team just to get some input for them to, you know, give me a two thumbs up or say, you know, go in this direction or that, Martin. And I would rehearse. Uh, you know, in the book, I talk about how in my first uh, fundraising gig, I, I, as I crisscrossed Southern Illinois going to see a prospective donor, I would, I would rehearse out loud, you know, kind of that key sentence or paragraph uh, about the, you know, whatever the request I was uh, bringing, you know, to them. And uh, you know, I've always found that thorough preparation helps me to deal with the, my, my anxiety and my fears uh, about, about a call. But, you know, getting to your point, well, what about the more established relationships? I still operate out of, I think, a, a, a certain amount. I, I get high energy when I'm preparing to go on a call. It's almost like an athlete, you know, uh, pre before the big game, the big match. And so to, I just know that, that that is about myself. And uh, even going into a more uh, a relationship that's firmly established, I will kind of try and be self-aware as we're reestablishing the relationship, you know, establishing rapport in the relationship to make sure I'm calming down <laughs> so that, you know, I don't get in the way of what we're hoping to accomplish. The other thing I would say about this is the longer we work at try and develop, I guess you could say, our craft as fundraisers, we grow in competence. And competence, I think, essentially flows from a combination of being students of our work, learning about the field, keeping up professionally, perhaps getting certifications. Of course, nowadays you can get undergraduate and graduate degrees in the field. And uh, of course, seminars, webinars, listening to podcasts like what you have, Charles. Then you have to marry that with experience. And of course, experience you accrue over time. So I would say, that after, uh, when I think about 25 years of asking for gifts, my last five years were easier than the first 20 because I accrued a certain amount of experience. And so that if someone, you know, reacted, let's say, in a negative way or a hostile way or with an objection uh, or two about our organization or what I was hoping to gain support for, well, i kind of been there, done that. I'd had that experience before. And not that each donor, of course, is unique and has to be treated uniquely, but, you know, I could fall back on uh, this career of, of experience to help me. And then, of course, dialed down the anxiety uh, as I became more competent in my work. Well, Martin, your, your book notes that individuals give to good causes for a variety of reasons, many of them starting with because and then followed by some explanation. I suppose the fundraising challenge is to encourage and help shape a narrative between you and the donor that makes sense both to the donor and to the institution receiving a donation. How do you think about the issue of reason giving, which seeks to align the needs of the parties involved? Uh, well, first of all, I think that's a fascinating question. And uh, 
in, in one way, it touches back on this idea of being a facilitator. It's so important for us as fundraisers to get to know our donors and our prospective donors. And I like to say that if you want to get to know a prospective donor or donor quickly, spend 80% of the time listening and 20% of the time talking about your organization, certainly at the outset. And ask open-ended questions in order to give the opportunity for the person across from you or the couple across from you to talk about what matters to them, uh, what their aims are, and so on. And during the course of those kinds of conversations, what I found is I begin to detect or perceive or understand motivations. There's all kinds of motivations that, that underlie why somebody is philanthropic. It could be they're looking to identify with your mission, that what it is that you do as an organization is something that they believe uh, aligns with them. It could be that they operate out of a deep desire to make a difference. And, uh, you know, they, this is, a, again, core to who they are. Uh, for some people, they delight in giving. And I've had people comment to me as they're, you know, making a gift, I love to give, they would say. And that's because, you know, there's deep satisfaction that comes in giving. Some people give out of uh, almost a family tradition, you could say. I, you know, my wife Ellen and me, we're very philanthropic. And uh, certainly in my part of our equation or partnership is uh, I grew up with parents that tithed on a janitor's income. And uh, as I reflected on that, as I could grew older and grew into a young adult and, and into an adulthood, I realized, how did they do that? We never, I never felt like we were wanting for anything. And yet they were so incredibly generous. And that upbringing uh, for me and for many people has a, a, a direct bearing on their support. People often give to uh, emotionally, it's an emotional decision. So bringing stories about those who are helped or that which is helped uh, on the part of your organization uh, can oftentimes trigger within somebody this emotional reaction to want to give. And, and you know, it kind of goes on, religious beliefs and so on and so forth. Uh, tax benefits are usually on the bottom of the pile, you know, in terms of what matters to people. Uh, tax benefits, okay, they, they may matter, but they matter later. What they're really looking for is these other dimensions in their lives to be met. So for us as fundraisers, start getting this understanding, this reason giving, as you, you call it, Charles, starts with, you know, listening, perceiving, considering thoughtfully what it is that they are saying to you about themselves and their motivations. And then, again, that helps uh, the facilitator of philanthropy to bring a, you know, a uh, request in a way that uh, aligns well with with the donor and you know how the donor views philanthropy. Yeah, that's a very thoughtful approach. What I want to do now is bring it bring us back to the subject of my podcast, which is organizational effectiveness. And the way I generally describe organizational effectiveness, it's, it's really being responsive to your environment and looking for the uptake, adoption, and use by 
actors out in the environment about what you're offering. Um, so if you're a nonprofit, uh, you're offering certain kinds of things. It might be plays in the, in the case of an arts foundation. And the uptake adoption and use or the visiting the plays uh, is an exchange of benefits between the organization and its environment. And this benefit exchange can take several forms, but they generally fall into three categories. The first is the transaction level, which is kind of financial and economic. Uh, so somebody pays to come see a, a concert or a play. That's a financial exchange to the organization. But you get an economic benefit for that. You, you get to enjoy the play and, or the concert and to talk about it with your friends later on. Uh, number two might be an emotional kind of connection where there's social and psychological benefits. And then even a transcendent type uh, purpose where you're getting environmental and spiritual benefits. So I could envision a package of benefits being exchanged between a donor and an organization that encom encompasses all three of these levels, especially for a large gift. Um, so how do you think about the types of benefits that donors exchange uh, with an organization when they, when they give their gifts? Well, first of all, I do want to say, Charles, I think your analysis um, moving from transactional to emotional to transcendent is really, I think, what we are trying, we are after uh, as facilitators of philanthropy. We want to this role of philanthropy and and this exchange that we are involved with is all about leading people to transcendence. We want to bring them to. Uh, we want their best selves, I guess you could say, to be manifested through their their charitable giving and we want to draw upon that try and draw that forth because again philanthropy is a profound opportunity for people to make a difference and to understand who they are in the world but when once someone makes a gift you know there there's a number of things we need to be thinking about and acting upon uh, as fundraisers well, you got to make sure that they receive a tax receipt, right? I mean, that's kind of the transactional piece. But you know, we have to have the attitude of gratitude and the practice of gratitude. And that means, you know, written notes. It may be a phone call. It may be um, requesting and having an in-person visit to express gratitude. It could be... Uh, thinking about additional recognition uh, oftentimes you know for more extraordinary gifts where uh, uh, you might create a small event if you will in order to recognize someone when I was uh, at the University of Missouri St. Louis as its vice chancellor for advancement we had an annual affair and uh, I introduced um, recognition charitable recognition into the event it was a wonderful event, but when, once we added recognition, where we would bring people onto the stage uh, and give them a moment to receive a gift, have their picture taken with our chancellor, sometimes our system president was there too, and let folks know that they had reached a certain milestone of giving. This was very, very powerful. And, and most people don't look for recognition, but most people appreciate recognition when it comes. And it was a powerful thing for them because it would, it would motivate them to want to give more oftentimes. 
But for all the people that were in the gathering, they were motivated by this particular person, couple, or organization and their extraordinary support. So recognition is something to be very thoughtful about. I would also say, you know, a significant gift, a gift of greater significance, you know, presents an opportunity for us to uh, seek, invite greater involvement on the part of the donors. So many people, of course, as our donors have other resources to offer. They have talents, they have intelligence, they have experience, they have time, they have energy, they have relationships. And uh, how might they continue their involvement uh, or expand upon their involvement in the light of their charitable support? Uh, we also, I think, have a responsibility, we're foolish if we don't, to provide ongoing communication to, to donors, to let them know what uh, is being accomplished by our organization because of their support. And I would also say, uh, Charles, last but not least, we should be providing ongoing education about our organization information. That can be electronic, of course, it can be paper newsletters that come through the mail. Again, it can be phone calls, in-person meetings, but a way to continue to uh, inform and uh, deepen uh, donors' understandings about the, the mission and the importance and the results of their, their support of our organizations. Well, Martin, um, your book covers a lot of ground, and we're not going to be able to touch on all aspects today, but are there other areas of the book that we've not covered that you'd like to highlight? A couple of thoughts, uh, Charles, if I might. One is fundraising is honorable work. It's honorable work. You know, sometimes I've had people uh, in humor uh, say as I would be approaching them to have a conversation, oh, oh, they turn to one another, grab your billfold, close your purse, here comes Martin. Well, I chuckle with them, but I never really understood that. I never got it because the work that I get to do is honorable work. What we get to do, those of us who are in the fundraising profession, is help people make a difference with their lives. As we've been talking about today, this facilitation of philanthropy is an ennobling uh, activity, experience for donors. They become greater people because, because of it. They get to have a greater impact with their lives than otherwise. And we are a part, we are uh, instrumental instrumental in making having that happen for them it's honorable work so i would say that the other thing i would say is in fundraising you have to have a, a long view you have to have a long view because many donors their gifts of the the greatest amounts happen later in their lives and oftentimes certainly later in the relationship over time so we have to have the long view it's relationships first. We get to grow older as representatives along with our donors. I'm thinking of one uh, relationship that I might as an example. Um, Chancellor Tom George, who I worked with, uh, worked at the University of Missouri-St. Louis for 16 years. I was with him for 10 years. And uh, when he first arrived, he was hardly there. He met this particular individual who was uh, running a growing business, an entrepreneur. And they had things in common. They, they shared a passion for uh, a genre of music. And um, 
they were they were very friendly together. I came along about five years into the relationship and and added you know my presence and participation, and we received a wonderful gift. It was a six figure gift from this donor, and the years went on. And we had conversations about uh, larger gifts with the donor, but it never seemed to be the right time. I'm not exaggerating. It was 15 years, my last year at the University of Missouri St. Louis, when that donor uh, made an extraordinary gift to the university. I was literally walking out the door, leaving the university, moving into this next chapter of my life. And these donors, um, confirmed that they were going to do a truly extraordinary gift in the seven figures. But it was 15 years for Chancellor George and 10 years for me. And that's not unusual in our work that these gifts of greater size, scale, uh, come later in the relationship, which takes time. So we have to have the long view. Major giving uh, doesn't happen at once. Those of us who want to undertake it in smaller nonprofits or, new, or are newer to it, regardless of our size as a nonprofit, uh, we shouldn't expect we can you know, snap our fingers and have major gifts come rolling in. It's about building relationships and, and time. Well, it's been great to have you on the program today, uh, Martin. Uh, I'll uh, leave a, a link to martinleifeld.com. That's um, Leifeld is L-E-I-F-E-L-D. Uh, in the show notes, and uh, hopefully uh, uh, you'll hear from some of our listeners. So thanks again, Martin. Thank you, Charles. My pleasure. And that's about it for today. Join us again next time when we'll consider more stories about organizations and their performance. In the meantime, you can access all of our podcast episodes at our website, ageofoe.com. And I'm your host, Charles Chandler, saying so long for now.